Good morning, Gak. I'm not going to say which elder said this to me, but as I walked in, he told me, feel free to go for more than 20 minutes, so strap in, (laughs) because we might be here for the whole sermon time and maybe even some of the fellowship time. I'll try not to go that long. Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to close out this chapter. We get to see what Paul has to say in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, and we're, we're actually even going to be in um, chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Now before I read, I'm, I just want to do a quick recap. And I'm not sure how many of you guys remember this, but two weeks ago when Joel spoke, he said something, and it was almost a short phrase or a short statement that he said almost in passing, but it really caught my attention. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And what he said was, when God created us, he designed and intended for us to be in fellowship with him. When God created us, he intended for us to have and enjoy an intimacy or a relationship with him. But unfortunately, since the creation happened, the fall of man happened, and because of the sin nature in us, we uh, constantly find a way to give value and prioritize, prioritize things that, in reality, that have, have no value at all. Especially in light of eternity, these things have no value. In other words, sin finds a way to keep us distracted from the presence of God. When in reality, there's nothing sweeter than spending time at the feet of Jesus. There's nothing sweeter than abiding in Him. There's a reason why the psalmist in Psalm 16 verse 11, he says, In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because this is what God intended when He created us. For us to be in fellowship with Him and to know Him. Now, knowing God isn't something that we should just strive for in just a moment of our day when we do our daily devos or when we have our quiet time. Our goal should be to have our minds so saturated with knowing Him that it impacts how we live in every aspect of our lives. It should impact how we think. It should impact how we talk. It should impact what we do with our time and energy. And last week, we saw when um, when we went through the previous passage, we saw Paul saying, this is something I'm still working on. I've yet to perfect knowing Christ. It's, and But he went on to say he still strives for it every day. He presses on for it every day. In fact, his exact words were forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. So if you haven't already, please look at Philippians chapter 3 verses 17 onwards. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we're grateful to be able to come together like this as uh, as a body of believers and to be able to worship you with songs and hymns. But Father God, as we spend some time in your word right now, and I, I ask and pray that you would help us to worship you through your scriptures. I ask and pray that as we spend some time and as we labor in it, as we study it, that you'd help us to see your glory in this text. Help us, God. And help us to help us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers. To live these words out in every single day of our lives. And I ask and pray that you'd also be with me as I speak. And that I um, that you help me to speak the truth. Your word and your word alone. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Let's read verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, when I first read this verse, I was a little confused because I'm not sure how you read it, but this sounded a little arrogant to me, right? For Paul to say, to imitate me, It goes against, I think, Paul's character because just in the previous chapter we saw Paul encouraging the church of Philippi to to be humble and to follow the example of Christ in humility. And then in the previous passage last week we saw Paul telling the church of Philippi, I'm not perfect. I still am working and pressing on to know Christ every single day. How then can an imperfect man tell the church of Philippi to imitate him? How could he possibly have the audacity to tell the church of Philippi to follow his example? This morning, I want to tell you about um, three very important people in my life that I have chosen to imitate. And these are men who have mentored me and discipled me over the years and guided me really through life. The first of which is my dad. Now, when my sister and I were younger, um, our parents would let us stay up a little past our usual bedtime so that we could, you know, do something fun with our night. But at some point in the night, we would eventually get to a point where we got hungry and we needed to, to snack on something. So we would slowly make our way downstairs quietly, trying not to make too much noise so that we wouldn't wake up our parents. But we knew one thing. If we went downstairs before 12 or 1, we knew to expect to see the lights in my dad's office still turned on. And every now and then I would uh, go by the office to see what he was up to so late at night. And I would see him there studying and laboring in the Word of God. Sometimes it was to prepare for a Sunday school class. Sometimes it was to prepare for a sermon that week. But a lot of the times it was to just study the Word of God. And every now and then he would call me in, we'd talk, and he would tell me what it is that he was studying about. Sometimes it would, sometimes I would understand what he was talking about, but a lot of times it would go straight over my head. 
But one thing was very clear to me from a very young age. This was a man who was passionate about the Word of God. This was a man who loved studying the Word of God. This was a man who had fallen in love with the Word of God. And for the longest time, I thought he studied the Word of God, you know, to gain knowledge or to, uh, to know more. But as I grew older, it became more and more apparent to me that he spent time in the Word of God because he enjoyed spending time in the presence of God. And so over the years, Dad was able to teach me and mentor me and disciple me in this, that he, he was able to show me the Word of God for its true value, its immeasurable value. And he taught me to love the Word of God. Now, um, fast forward several years, it's the summer of 2018, and I make my way over here to Dubuque, Iowa, and I attend Emmaus Bible College. And um, when you're a freshman there, the first semester, you have to take a class called Transitions. And this class is meant, it's designed to help students transition from their high school life to college life. And it's supposed to give you some tips and tricks on how to study, how to succeed in college. Now, because I had already gone to uh, college, I had already done my four-year degree before this, it may have decided it wasn't necessary for me to take it. So every day after lunch, at exactly 1240, all the students would be, would be rushing off to the auditorium, all the freshman students would be rushing off to the auditorium to take this class. And I was still sitting there in the dining hall, and I had really not much to do. So one day, I decided to follow them over to the auditorium to this transitions class to see what it was about. What are they teaching in this class? And um, it was a man by the name of Ben Brown. I'm not sure how many of you met him, but he was the one teaching this course. And I never met him. I never talked to him. I never even heard of him until this day. And I eventually found out that he was a coach, so everyone called him Coach Brown. And that particular day, he was talking about and teaching about discipleship and the importance of discipleship. And as he's talking, he's pacing back and forth, going up and down the stairs. And if you know anything about Coach Brown, you know this is something he's really passionate about. And as I'm sitting there in the audience, I'm thinking to myself, I'm in a new phase of life. I'm in a completely new community, a completely new environment, and I don't exactly have anyone to guide me through it. So at the end of class, as Coach Brown is leaving the auditorium, I walk up to him and introduce myself. I tell him, hey, my name is Joel. Um, I'm new here. This is my first year here at Emmaus. And uh, I, I, you really got me thinking about what you said about discipleship. And I was wondering, would you be willing to disciple me? And so we met the next week. And we met again the week after that. And we continued to meet once a week for the next three years. And what he did for me was he, he discipled me, he mentored me through some of life's toughest journeys for me. One in particular, which I'm, I, I want to share with you today, before I came to Emmaus, I, um, I was addicted to pornography. It was a real struggle for me. And Coach Brown, what he did was he mentored me through this healing process. He discipled me through this healing process. He walked me through it for three years. And he held my hand and took me through the scriptures and gave me reasons to walk away from this struggle. And he discipled me. And so dad taught me to love the word of God 
And Coach Brown, he taught me to live out the Word of God. Now, three years later, he ended up uh, marrying Brill and I, and um, he ended up moving to Hutchinson, Kansas, because that's where God called him. And so now, again, I'm in this new phase of life, married, completely clueless as to what I'm doing. And I, I start thinking, I, I need someone to mentor me again. I need someone to guide me through this process. But this time, I was looking for something a little different in my mentor. I was looking for someone who could help me develop my gifts. And something I had thought about was, maybe God has gifted me with the ability to teach because I've done it a couple times here and there and I've really enjoyed doing it. So I want to find someone who can develop this gift in me. And so I started thinking, I started praying about it, I talked to Abril about it, and I realized the whole time the answer was sitting right in front of me. It was Joel Carter. What better person to ask than the man who teaches for a living? In fact, he teaches how to teach for a living. Right? And he teaches here at Sunday school. He teaches from the pulpit. He was perfect. So I, again, I uh, talked to him and I asked him to disciple me. And he, we've been meeting for the past year now. And he's been teaching me how to teach. And actually, this is, this is a part of that process. And so dad taught me to love the word of God. Coach Brown taught me to live out the word of God. Now Joel is teaching me how to teach the word of God. Now, none of these men that I just mentioned, none of these men are perfect. None of these men have perfected their walk with God. Let alone, none of them have perfected what it is that they taught me to do. Dad is still pressing on and striving on to love the Word of God every single day. Coach Brown is still pressing on every single day to live out the Word of God. And Joel is still learning to teach the Word of God. Every single one of these men are still striving on, pressing on to know God in their lives. But one thing is certain. Every single one of these men that I just mentioned, they're further along in their faith, in their walk with Christ than I am. And seeing how well they've done in their journey with Christ, seeing how well they've done in their faith, it's in my best interest to imitate their faith. So that I too can imitate their success. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Philippian church here. He's telling them, listen, I know, I know I'm not perfect. I have yet to perfect my faith. I have yet to perfect knowing Christ. But I'm urging you, brothers, imitate me. Imitate my faith. Imitate others who share the same faith. Imitate others who have gone before you and done well. Imitate their faith. But why exactly is Paul urging them to do so? It's in the next verse, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now I think in order to be able to really understand the emotions that Paul is going through and to be able to empathize with him, I think it, I think we have to first take some time to understand what the cross of Christ means to Paul. You see, Paul was for Paul, the cross of Christ was central to his mission and message. 
he was, this was a man who grew up in the Jewish culture. I mean, earlier in the chapter, we saw he was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisees. So he wasn't just a student of the law. He was a teacher of the law. And he knew the law backwards and forwards. And his whole life, he had depended on the law to save him. And then he experienced uh, what he experienced on the road to Damascus. And then his eyes were opened. And he began to see the law could not save him. He began to see that the very thing that was meant to save him was going to condemn him. And so through the cross, he saw that humanity was set free from the law. The cross did what the law could never do, which was to reconcile humanity back to God. Through the cross, humanity was set free from sin. Through the cross, humanity was set free from the wrath of God. Through the cross, humanity was set free from death itself. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he emphatically rejoices and celebrates the fact that, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death was an eternity in hell. And through the cross, humanity was set free from that sting. Ultimately, through the cross, we have hope. You see, this, this is the message that Paul cherished and lived by. You see, the message of the cross wasn't just pivotal to his theology. It was pivotal to his very being and existence. And he did everything he can to make the message of the cross his own. Because Christ Jesus had made him his very own. One of the first things I want you to think about this morning is, have you learned to make the message of the cross your own? Have you learned to personalize the message of the gospel? Do you realize that when Christ hung there on the cross, He did it for you? And He thought of you? The very person that put Him there? Do you realize that when He did that for you, He did it so that you wouldn't have to face the wrath of God when you stand before God? So that you wouldn't have to spend an eternity in hell? Do you realize because Christ hung there on the cross, you get to spend an eternity in heaven in His presence where there's fullness of joy? Do you realize that you are a child of God? What a great thing to celebrate for us. If you've learned to personalize this gospel, not only will it change how you live your life, but you too would be adamantly defending the gospel like Paul is here. And Paul was so passionate about the gospel, and he was so passionate about defending it. And Paul has, throughout his letters, he's clearly displayed a heart for the lost souls. In fact, in his letter to the Romans, I believe, he says that he would be willing to lay down his life for the Jews if he could, if it meant that it would save them. So Paul was clearly, he clearly had a heart for the lost souls. But you know what? He loved God more. And that's why you can imagine as he's writing this letter from prison, his eyes are welling with tears. Because he knows, 
He knows anyone who chooses not to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be spending an eternity in hell. He didn't take it lightly when someone distorted the message of the cross. And he certainly, he certainly didn't take it lightly when he called someone the enemies of the cross of Christ. So when he says the enemies of the cross of Christ, who, who is he referring to? The truth is, it's, it's hard to tell. Some theologians say that, um, some commentary said that he could be possibly referring to the Judaizers that we saw in the beginning of the chapter. Possible. He could possibly be referring to a larger group of people that was trying to infiltrate the church from the outside with their earthly ideas and philosophies. It's possible. But for our intents and purposes, it doesn't matter who these people are. It matters what they're like. It matters to us that what, what, what qualities defined these, these group of people because if we can understand what qualities define them, we can avoid being anything like them. And maybe even recognize one when we see them. So, let's take a look at what qualities define the enemies of the cross of Christ. Starting in verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The first quality, the first attribute that I want to take a look at that defined the enemies of the cross of Christ was that their God is their belly. Now, this was Paul's way of saying the enemies of the cross of Christ, they they satisfied, they were constantly looking to satisfy the lust of their flesh. They were constantly looking to satisfy their desires and the, their cravings. They do as they will. Their bodies determined what they did with their lives. And they constantly lived for the temporal things of this world. So they were constantly satisfying those temporal desires. Their God was their belly. The second attribute that we see that defines the enemies of the cross of Christ is that they gloried in their shame. Because they were constantly living for the temporal things of the world, they, they constantly found honor and prestige in the things that had no eternal value. They gloried in the things that were going to bring them shame on the day of judgment. So one, their God is their belly. Two, they gloried in their shame. Three, they had their minds set on earthly things. You see, because because they were constantly living for this world, they were nearsighted. They never stopped to think what would happen to their life after death. It's not something they stopped to think about. And so they constantly lived for, they constantly invested in this life because that's all they knew. That's all they were thinking about. That's where they spent all their time and energy in. And as a result we see that their end is destruction. So we might not exactly be sure who these people were, who Paul was referring to, but one thing is certain. Whoever Paul was talking about, we know for certain that they weren't believers. Unless they repented, their end was destruction, meaning they were destined for an eternity in hell. 
Now, when I first read this list, these this list of attributes that define the enemies of the cross of Christ, I I thought maybe this was a group of people that was specific to that time, or maybe even that region, or maybe even um, to the Church of Philippi. When in reality, people like this still exist today. So as long as sin exists, people like this will always continue to exist. And unfortunately, there's often a strong temptation to follow their example. When I was in college, when I did my first four-year degree, and I I went to secular college, um, with the exception of a few believers who unfortunately, um, with the exception of a few believers, most of the people that I surrounded myself with were unbelievers who unfortunately fit this description. And they inevitably had an influence on me that didn't bode well for me. Their influence impacted the choices and decisions I made, and these weren't choices that were fitting for a Christian. And I'm not blaming them for the choices that I made. Those were my choices, my decisions, and my consequences to face. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't even be here. But what I'm trying to get to is that the people that you surround yourself with will ultimately determine who you become and what kind of choices and decisions you make. There's often a strong temptation to follow these kind of people because they will help us feed the desires and and um, the lust of our flesh. Something else I want you to think about this morning is who do you let influence you? What kind of people do you surround yourself with? This is exactly why Paul is saying, imitate me. Imitate my faith. Imitate those around you who share the same faith, who have gone before you and done well in their journey with Christ. And be careful of the ones that live like the enemies of the cross of Christ. But Paul also goes on to make a point to show a very sharp contrast between believers and unbelievers. And there, there are a lot of things that, um, there are a lot of differences between believers and unbelievers, but the contrast that we see here, I feel like is the, uh, it's a very strong uh, point of difference between believers and unbelievers. And to show you that, I'm going to read verse 19 again and read verse 20 after that. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to himself. You see, unbelievers, they live for the temporal things of this world. They're constantly running after what can satisfy their desires and what can satisfy their flesh right now. But as believers, ultimately, remember that this is not our home. Our end goal, our citizenship is in heaven. We have a hope worth living for. Isn't it incredible that one day, when God comes and takes us home with Him, 
we're going to be stripped of this sinful, sin-infested body. And we're going to become like Christ. Sinless and perfect. Sometimes it almost seems unimaginable because it is. It's hard to imagine something we've never experienced before. It's hard for me to imagine living a sinless life. Because that's something I've never experienced before. I know it can often be easy to forget this truth in the, in the middle of the craziness and busyness of life, but let this serve as a reminder for you. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a future worth looking forward to. You have a hope worth looking forward to. So then the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I truly live like it? Is that future that I'm looking forward to, is that just something I know? Is that something, is that just head knowledge? Is that just another theology that I enjoy talking and debating about? Or do I genuinely believe in it? Do I actually live like there's a joyful eternity waiting for me on the other side of this life? Because if I do, if I genuinely believe in that future, that's what I'm going to be investing my time and energy in. That's the retirement life I'm going to be investing in. As believers, we're not just called to think differently. We are called to live differently. And Paul closes out the section by uh, giving us, giving the church of Philippi one final encouragement. And it's in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. One thing has been apparent to me, I'm not sure if you guys have caught on to this or not, but one thing has been apparent to me throughout this book. This is a group of people that Paul really cared about. You can really tell that he has their best interest in mind. Right? For him to call my joy and crown. He really cares about them. And his encouragement to them as they live in a world full of distractions is to stand firm. And what does standing firm look like? What does that mean? What does standing firm look like in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation? If you haven't been listening up to this point, now's the time. I'm about to summarize the whole sermon for you. (laughs) This is what standing firm looks like. Imitate the faith of those who've gone before you and have done well. That's the first step. Imitate them. You see, discipleship is such a huge part of Christian living that often gets ignored. And it begins with understanding that the human heart and mind is desperately, desperately evil. I love the way Jeremiah puts it in chapter 17, verse 9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I love that verse. I know it's dark, but I love that verse because it constantly reminds me of my need for God and my need for my brothers and sisters. You see, if we were left on our own to satisfy the the pleasures and desires of our flesh and mind, 
we would end up just like the enemies of the cross of Christ. Restoring God's intended for our li- intended purpose for our lives, which is to fellowship with Him and to know Him, that takes discipline. It takes hard work, and it's hard to figure out what that discipline and hard work looks like on our own. But that's why God gave us a community. If you want to find out what that discipline and hard work looks like, ask someone. Ask someone who is spiritually more mature than you to disciple you. And if someone comes to you and asks you to disciple them, take them in. Make them a part of your life. Be honest with them. Be transparent with them. And I I really believe that honesty, vulnerability, and transparency, these are key components to discipleship. For example, with me and Joel, as he's discipling me, he can only help me so as long as I'm honest with him. It goes both ways too. When Joel is honest and transparent with me, he takes me in and makes me a part of his life, I quickly begin to realize we're not all that different. We may come from two different walks of life. We may come from two very different cultures. But because we're believers, we will always have two things in common. And one is that we both have the sin nature in us. And two, we worship a redeeming God. And so if someone asks you to disciple them, take them in. Make them a part of your lives. And be honest with them. Two weeks ago, I said that Joel said that God intended for us to be in fellowship with him. That's, that's why he created us. And when he created us, he intended for us to have that intimacy with him. This morning, I'm going to add to that by saying, when God created us, he also intended for us to be in fellowship with each other. So, standing firm, what does that look like? Number one, imitate the faith of those who have gone before you and who have done well. Number two, remember who you are. Remember who you are and where you're headed. Constantly remind yourself of the truth that there is a greater home waiting for you on the other side of this life. Constantly remind yourself that you are just a sojourner here on this earth. And one day, you will finally get to go home. Constantly remind yourself of that truth as you spend time in the Word of God, as you, as you spend time on your knees in prayer. Constantly remind yourself of that truth as you live life. It's for this very reason that I love, I absolutely love the breaking of bread service. As I'm sitting there, as we're breaking bread, I'm reminded of the body that was broken on the cross for me. As we drink that juice, I'm reminded of the blood that was shed for me. But you know what else I think of? How much sweeter and how much more glorious this worship is going to be in heaven. Where I'm going to be stripped of this sinful body. And I'm going to finally get to worship God without any distractions, without my mind constantly wandering off, and without sin. In the beginning, I quoted Psalm 16, verse 11, where the psalmist says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. When I finally get home, when I'm worshiping Him in heaven, I'm going to experience a fullness of joy that I've never experienced in my whole life before. That is a future worth looking forward to. 
So, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father God, we're, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for how you speak your truth through it. We're grateful that you gave us a guide to live by. Without it, we would be lost. And so, Father God, I ask and pray that in every single aspect of our lives that we would press on, that we would strive to know you. Because that's what you intended when you created us, and that's where we're going to find our greatest joy. So help us to draw closer to you every single day. And Father God, as we spend the rest of our time together, as we spend time in fellowship, I ask and pray that you would help us to encourage one another as we come back and spend time in your presence and as we go through the breaking of bread service, I ask and pray that you would help us to focus our minds, to remember what it is that you did for us. That incredible sacrifice that you made on the cross for me. Help us to remember that truth. And help us to constantly, constantly remember the future that's waiting for us. Help us to live for that future. Thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.